And I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And Father, we pray that you give us soft hearts to hear your word this morning. Uh, may your spirit uh, be at work in us, and would you uh, please uh, help us to hear uh, and to obey uh, what you have to say, as we trust you uh, and love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've been listening to God speaking to us through his word, through the Apostle Peter. Um, as we've uh, worked through uh, this, this book of 1 Peter. And Peter reminded us that God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And we've seen that what we are hoping for and waiting for is the inheritance that God has in heaven for us. It's being God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule in heaven together forever where sin is no more. That blessing of participating in that ultimate community of love. And we put up with various trials in this life as we wait for that reality. And while we do, God calls us to be holy. As he is holy. To live our lives here as strangers, different from the rest of the world. And to do it in fear. Not in a cowering servile fear, like the fear of someone you know, being threatened by a nasty criminal or, or a huge gorilla or something like that. But an appropriate fear. Consciousness that for everything that we do, we are accountable to our holy and loving Father, whose judgment is impartial. And we saw that we are all like stones, living stones, aligned to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and being built into a temple. And we are all the priests who offer up the spiritual sacrifices to God of, of everything we do and we say in different areas of our lives. They are the offerings of thanksgiving we give. And we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people belonging to God, so we may declare His goodness all the world and so Peter says in chapter 2 verse 11 to 12 he says dear friends I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us Peter then goes on to give four contexts in which we're to do that. He applies this principle, verses 11 and 12, to four different areas of life. He applies it to the government authorities in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, with people at the workplace in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, with our spouses in the home in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and then within the Christian community in chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Our last week we looked at the first two sets of relationships. We saw that we should submit to those in authority over us in the government. And we saw that for us in Malaysia that means obeying the laws of the land. We also saw how slaves were meant to submit to their masters. And there's a parallel in how we treat our bosses at work. Now, depending on our profession and workplace, it may mean obeying them or respectfully considering their views. But whether we're submitting to the government or submitting to our bosses, 
reason we do it is not for them. We do it freely and we do it deliberately for the Lord. So it doesn't depend on whether they're good or whether or not we agree with them. We're still doing it for the sake of Christ. We fear the Lord and so we honour them. And when we refuse to submit to them, it's because they, what, it's when, the, when, when what they say clashes with what God says. Because the whole reason we're submitting to them is for the Lord. Now many of us find what the Holy Spirit says there pretty challenging, don't we? Uh, I think a lot of us last week were trying to live differently uh, as a result. I know I've driven along the road and realized that I was going over the speed limit and you know, tried to slow down to, to fit into what this Peter was saying. And that's just one of the easy applications. Uh, relating to bosses at work, uh, for some of you, would be much harder. But if last week's passage was hard, then there will be some of us for which this week's passage will be even harder. Right? Some of us will find it difficult to accept, uh, especially in that husband-wife section. And I don't blame you if you do. Right? You might find it particularly difficult because it doesn't square with what some parts of our society think about the equality of, of sexes. Now, if that's you, let me remind you again that having different roles in no way undermines equality in dignity. Paul, uh, Peter himself will affirm the equality of women and men in chapter 3 verse 7 when he reminds husbands that their wives are co-heirs with them of the gift of life. We'll come to that in a tick. But think of this example. You're just as valuable a person as the policeman who directs the traffic. Right? You're in no way are you inferior to him. You're just as important as him, but you do what he says because of the role he's in. So when he says stop the car, you stop the car the equality and submission can coexist think of Jesus he submitted to Mary and Joseph as his parents but you think for one moment he was lesser than them because he did well, of course not see submission in no way implies inferiority and remember to the Trinity Jesus has always been equal to the Father and yet he submitted to the Father See, being equal doesn't mean being identical, nor does it mean interchangeable. You can be equal but different. Submission is not weakness. It's not saying we're less than a person than the person we're submitting to, less of a person than the person we're submitting to. But it's following the example of the Lord Jesus, who was equal with God and yet submitted to his Father. Now, Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Not because the husband's a better person than they are. He may not be. Not because he's smarter. He probably isn't. Um, not because he has a dominant personality. He may or may not have that either. But just as a Christian citizen submits to the authorities for the sake of the Lord, as the Christian slave submits to his master for the sake of the Lord, so the Christian wife submits to her husband for the sake of the Lord. Doesn't mean she's a doormat. Doesn't mean she's no minor of her own. No, no, not far from that. But she does realize that God has placed her under the authority of her husband and she deliberately and freely allows him to lead her. She yields to him 
out of love and respect for the Lord Jesus. And she does that because he is her husband. Even if he doesn't love and respect the Lord Jesus himself. And so, Peter goes on to speak specifically to women who are married to non-Christian men. Uh, in the words of verse 1, so that if any of them do not believe the word. So people who don't believe the word or literally are disobedient to the word, that still counts. Now, there are actually many Christian women who find themselves in that situation, aren't there? Uh, we all know that uh, whenever we have the choice, we should marry a Christian. Right? I think we know that. We've said that often enough. We've read it in the Bible. If you're single and you're living in Malaysia in the 21st century, you have the choice. You may face the pressure to marry a non-Christian, but you have the choice not to. So exercise it. But some people in some societies don't have that kind of choice. Some people are married off by their parents at a very young age. Furthermore, some women become Christians only after getting married. It's probably true of the people that Peter was writing to. And Peter doesn't want them becoming a Christian to be an excuse for breaking up their marriage. Sometimes people marry people who they think they're Christian, and after some time they find they're just faking it. Or they thought they believed at the time, but then later on just, just gave up on the faith. And they left the other party as the only Christian in the relationship. And sometimes people make wrong choices. And God forgives us when we repent, but he wants us to live with the choices that we've made. And God's word continues to speak to us in our situations. So if you've married a non-Christian in the past, then that's the covenant that you've made. And you have to stick to it. And God doesn't want you to divorce him, but to win him. And so whatever the reason is that these women were married to non-Christians, Peter knows the thing they'll be hoping for and praying for more than anything else is that their husbands would come to know Christ. But notice what he says to do about it. He doesn't say, preach at them at breakfast, put a tract in their lunch, do two ways to live with them when they come home from work and threaten to walk out on them if they don't do Christianity explore. The first and foremost thing he says to them is not telling them but showing them. Verses 1 and 2 again. Is that wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. It doesn't mean the husband should never hear the gospel. He must be told the gospel. In fact, he must have been told the gospel already. If not, he wouldn't be able to disobey it, would he? But he doesn't need to be nagged with the gospel. And Peter says, if they won't obey the word, try to win him without words. With verse 2, with the purity and reverence of your life. Or, or literally, your pure conduct in fear. In other words, the, the pure conduct of your life that comes from the fear of the Lord. Remember what he said in 2 verse 12? Live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your father on the day of his visitation. Well, here's the example. 
the best example of living the good life, of having such good conduct among the pagans that you, they see your good deeds and are safe, because what could be closer than a husband-wife relationship? Where better could an unbeliever see the good conduct of a Christian than in marriage? And so Peter says to Christian wives, let your husband see that. Let them see what a godly and pure and good wife you are. Let them see how your purity and submission come from the Lord, not from the fear of your husband, not simply as a reward for his goodness as a husband, but out of reverence for the Lord, in honor and worship of him. Remember how Peter told us that all of us are priests offering up spiritual sacrifices to God? Well, worship the Lord, he says, in the way you treat your non-Christian husbands. Let them be attracted to the Lord who made you this way. And then Paul tells the wise how to be really attractive. Verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, Peter's not saying that you can't braid your hair or wear gold jewelry or wear nice clothes. We know that for sure, because I will show you. In the original Greek, the word jewelry is not there, and the word fine is not there. So in verse 3, NIV puts it in for us, but it it actually says, your beauty should not come from upper adornments such as braided hair and jewelry and the wearing of clothes. So if that's the case, verse 3 can't be a blanket prohibition, can it? You may get some people who say you can't braid your hair or wear gold, but I've never heard of anyone who tries to argue on the basis of this verse that you can't wear clothes. Peter's not saying that. Nor is he saying you can't wear makeup, by the way. What he's saying is that that's not what you should rely on to make you beautiful and attractive to your husband. Now, I'm sure your husband would appreciate outward beauty, but he's not going to be attracted to the gospel by your stunning looks. See, in the long term, that's not what's going to make the relationship work. It's the inner beauty. It's what it calls the hidden person of the heart. It's the attractiveness of your conduct. It's how you relate to him. That's where your adornment should come from. And that kind of attractiveness is not one that disappears with age. Peter says in verse 4 that it's an unfading beauty. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 4, he's talked about the inheritance in heaven which can never perish, spoil, or fade. And chapter 2, verse 23, he's talked about the fact that we're not born of perishable seed, but imperishable, the word of God. And now he says, your beauty should be like that as well. See, gold, braids, clothes, they will disappear, but the beauty of godly character lasts forever. And that is of great worth in God's sight. And so what makes you really beautiful, he says, It's not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. And he calls it a gentle and quiet spirit. Now the word translated gentle also means humble, considerate, meek. It's the opposite of being arrogant and contentious, always wanting to fight, uh, always insisting on your rights. It's the word that Jesus uses when he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus described himself that way. Or in the prophecy of Zechariah, who said about Jesus, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. 
Or when Jesus himself says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? And what makes you beautiful, Peter says, is showing that fruit, that gentleness. The other characteristic that Peter mentions is a quiet spirit. Uh, it's nothing to do with whether or not you have a bubbly personality or you're a softly spoken one. It's not about the volume of your speech. Right? The other place in the Bible we find that word is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. We're told we're to pray for kings and those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. See, quietness there is an absence of civil strife. So a quiet person is someone who doesn't try to stir up arguments. And it's not argumentative, it's not stirring trouble. And so Peter calls on women in mixed marriages to have a be quiet, have a gent show gentleness and quietness. It's not a particular feminine thing, it's it's a fruit of the spirit that's that's for that's for, for men and women. Uh, but particularly he applies it in this in this uh, in this context. So, women in mixed marriages are submit to the leadership of their non-Christian husbands and do it in a Christian way, that is, with gentleness and quietness, not being arrogant or overbearing or argumentative. Now, it may be hard, because their husbands might have a weak in character, and so their tendency may be to take over. Or maybe their husbands are jerks, who don't deserve this kind of love and, and could be godly behavior. Right? But Peter says, you do it for the Lord. And you're seeking to win him by your attractive life. Now this inner beauty approach uh, is not without precedent. Uh, Christian women are holy. They've been set apart from God. And, Paul, and Peter then goes back to the example of other holy women. Uh, and he goes and in verse 5. He says, For this is the way the holy women in the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters, if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Notice what these holy women did. They made themselves beautiful by submitting to their husbands. Abraham, Abraham, he obeyed God by setting out for a far country, and Sarah obeyed Abraham by going with him, didn't she? And there are many times when obeying Abraham might not have seemed like a good idea. Yeah, but she went on anyway. Peter says she called him her master. Now, the reference is to Genesis 18, verse 12, where she laughs to herself because that, you know, they say, you know, the angel says, oh, you're going to have a baby. And she laughs. I can't have a baby because Abraham, my master, is too old. So even when she's doubting, the mental vocabulary that she uses in talking about him is a respectful one. Now, Peter doesn't say all women are to exp express their respect of their husbands with that kind of vocabulary. No, it just wouldn't work in our culture to call husbands master. Unless you're a genie. <laughs> but Paul wants wives to follow the example, not, not by what they call them, but how they treat them. You have become her daughters, verse 8. Sorry, verse 6. You're her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Do good, Peter says. Don't be intimidated. Don't let your husband's bad behavior stop you from doing good. Don't let your fears lead you into hostility and anger and argumentativeness. Don't let the wagging tongues of other people stop you. You live an exemplary life in your home that you may win your unbelieving husband to the Lord. 
It's not a guarantee that it's going to happen. But if you do this, then you've done your part. The rest is between him and God. But most of us here don't happen to be uh, Christian women married to non-Christian husbands. So what are the implications here for us? What are the lessons, the principles that, that Peter's laying here? I think the biggest thing that we can learn is that showing is sometimes more important than telling. Showing is sometimes more important than telling. Now, of course, people need to know the gospel at some stage, don't they? They need to hear it, or they won't know about Jesus who died for us, and they won't know how to be saved. They won't know that he rose again as Lord and King of all, as King of all, so they won't be able to submit to him. But when people are really close to us, especially those with some kind of authority over us, then telling and telling and telling is not necessarily helpful. Telling without showing will be ineffective. People need to see as much as they need to hear. And so Peter says, live your lives among pagans such that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let me take an example of non-Christian parents. I know that many people in Smack whose parents are not yet Christians. What do you do for them? Well, parents don't like to be lectured to by their children, especially in the Asian culture. What will they say? They'll say, please don't tell me what to do. I've eaten more salt than you've eaten rice. Is that right? What will they say? So you have to be very humble and respectful in your approach to them. Actions speak louder than words. You love them, you honor them, you do all the right things for them, you do all the right things by them, as long as it doesn't clash with the gospel. So that on the one hand they know that God is the most important person in your life, and they also know that because you honor God, you honor them. Let them see your conduct in this exemplary way. They may not approve of your faith, they may accuse you of all kinds of things at first, But generally, and I say generally because there's many, many exceptions, but generally, they'll eventually come around to accepting your decision that you want to follow Jesus. And eventually they may even soften their hearts and be open to hearing the message themselves, but you don't force it down their throat. Live it out first. Show them your Christian behavior, your pure conduct, which comes from the fear of the Lord in the home. The gentleness and quietness of spirit that's impressive to God and impressive to them. Remember how Peter said that we're all priests offering our spiritual sacrifices to God? Well, worship God by the way you treat your non-Christian parents. And let them be attracted to the Lord who made you this way. Peter then moves on to address husbands. Uh, And notice that When he does it, he never tells husbands to enforce submission in their wives. Let me say that again. The Bible never tells husbands to enforce submission in their wives. That's not the husband's job. It's something that must be given freely and deliberately by the wife or not at all. So what are Christian husbands to do? Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. 
See, in the same way that wives were to submit to their husbands for the sake of the Lord, the husbands had to play their part in the way they care for their wives for the sake of the Lord. It's in the same way. Not simply as a reward for her goodness as a wife, but in reverence for the Lord, in honour and worship of Him. So what are we meant to do? Well, firstly, verse 7 says to be considerate as we live with them. And literally, it actually says, live with them according to knowledge. According to knowledge. That is, husbands are responsible to find out what we need to know in order to be good husbands. I need to know God's plans and purposes for marriage, but we also need to know our wives. We need to know what she thinks, how she feels, what is helpful, what is hurtful, her strengths, her weaknesses, her goals, her desires. We need to spend time to listen. And it's our job to do that. So if you can lead your wife in a Christian way, you must first be able to stand in her shoes. You must know how she thinks, how she feels, how she loves. Don't try to tell her what to do until she knows that you really, really, really understand her and where she's coming from. Men, live with your wives according to knowledge. Take time to listen to God and the scriptures and take time to listen to your wife. You need to know them both. Secondly, Peter says to treat her with respect. In fact, it's a general term, not treating women with respect. So it's not just wives who are to respect or honor their husbands. Husbands are to honor their wives. And there are two aspects to this honor. Firstly, it is treating them in an honorable way as what is literally said to be weaker vessels. Our translation says weaker partners here, but literally it's weaker vessels. In other words, it's stressing the physical nature of the weakness. You see, women are generally weaker than men, generally, right, weaker than men in a physical way. There are some exceptions, okay, there may be some marriages between a small man and a big strong lady, right? but generally the husband is bigger and stronger than the wife. And sadly, men have often used their physical strength or their wife's relative physical weakness to threaten, to abuse, or in other ways to be violent towards women. And Peter says that is not acceptable. It is not acceptable to God and it must not be acceptable in the Christian community. Domestic violence is completely out of the question for a Christian man. God says you are to honor your wife as the weaker vessel, not to abuse your relative strength. If anyone's been violent to their wife, then please repent and get help. You cannot honor God and beat your wife at the same time. Treat women with honor as weaker vessels. The second way we're to treat wives with honor in verse 7 is as co-heirs or co-inheritors of the gift of life. Peter says in 1, chapter 1, verse 3, that we've been born again to, uh, to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. And friends, that applies to us equally, whether we are men or women. And Peter wants the husbands to remember that. He wants husbands to honor women as equal inheritors of the gift of life, the gift that consists of eternal life. 
For husbands and wives, while they have different roles in marriage, if they belong to Jesus, they share the same destiny and the same glory in heaven. They receive the same inheritance. And so men must never look down on women as being lesser or anything like that. Must not show disrespect to their wives just because they're given the leadership role in the marriage. No, no, no. Husbands are to honor their wives as joint heirs of that gift of life. Because in that ultimate sense, they are equal. And husbands are to respect their wives as equals in that way. And here's a warning to husbands about how they treat their wives. Peter says, at the end of verse, uh, verse 7, he says, Treat them with respect as a weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. See, if you fail to honor your wife properly, if you abuse her physically, if you do not honor her as an equal inheritor of God's kingdom, then it can be rightly said you are doing evil. And Peter will remind us in verse 12, he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, God takes the dishonoring of women seriously. And as long as you persist in treating your wife in that way, you are doing evil and God will not answer your prayers. Remember how Peter told us there were all priests offering up spiritual sacrifices to God? Well, husbands... Worship God by the way you treat your wives. And if you don't do that, or you won't do that, then don't bother with your prayers, because you're wasting your breath. The final section, or the final part of our section, uh, moves on to deal with the, how we act as a community, and we treat our community together. It starts off with the word, finally, in verse 8. Now the word there is, is telos, which also means goal, uh, completion, end point. So uh, Peter is saying that the icing on the cake of all these relational instructions he's been giving us the last two weeks is how we treat each other in the gathering of believers. So not only do we live such good lives among the pagans individually, but we do it together. And together we show the world what authentic Christian community is about. At first aid he says, finally all of you, Live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. So he gives us these five characteristics that are meant to, to mark our gathering together. These five traits of our common life. Harmony, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion and humility. Harmony means like-mindedness. That means having a common understanding of the gospel. A common approach based on the gospel of how do we go about ministry. That doesn't mean we've got to always agree on everything, absolutely. You know, There'll be some areas where we will disagree in love, but underlying that there must be this, this rock-solid like-mindedness about the gospel. Agreement in the way we serve Christ together, based on the apostles' teaching in Scripture. And Paul wants us to have this attitude. Same priorities, the same way of thinking, which he's given us in this letter, and it calls us to be like-minded with each other the word sympathy is about suffering together co-suffering that is we need to be deeply concerned about the pains and the burdens and the sorrows of each other we need to be people who will not only rejoice with those who rejoice but weep with those who weep as we say just now we need to be a caring community 
The third and central thing here is brotherly love. To love each other as brothers and sisters. See, we are family, and so we should love each other like members of a family. When we need each other, we'll be there for each other. We look out for each other and care for each other. Brotherly love is a mark of how we relate to each other. The next characteristic is compassion, which is the opposite of being hard-hearted. It means feeling for each other, and the ups and the downs, and willingness to forgive each other for foibles and blunders and offences. mean to be compassionate, soft-hearted to each other. And finally, we're meant to be humble. Humility means treating each other as having a better status than ourselves. And so in all our dealings with each other, we will show respect and honor to each other in a way that people in the world only honor those who are more powerful than they are. We're not meant to be arrogant or self-seeking in any way. It doesn't mean, mean that we don't use the gifts that God has given us to, to build up the body. It's got nothing to do with gifts and everything to do with attitude. Humility before others is treating them as of having a higher status than us. Humility before God is listening and obeying to his word, standing under it, being willing to be corrected by it. This is the one I esteem, says the Lord, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We're to be humble. And so the community, the church, the gathering that we are aiming to be is one where like-mindedness and sympathy and brotherly love and compassion and humility abound. But even within such a community there will be times when we are treated wrongly. And here we still again have the opportunity to suffer sacrificially, to, to do good when we are wronged. And Peter goes on to say in verse 9, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, Peter's not being very clever and original here. Jesus told him the same thing. No, there is no room for nastiness or revenge in the church community. Not to tra- trade slurs and slights, not to pay back wrong for wrong. People say bad things about us, we're not going to go around saying bad things about them. If people insult us, we're not to curse them, but to bless them, which means either to say good things about them or to ask God to be kind and gracious to them. In either way, it's not being vindictive. We'll be a big community of God's people who are like-minded and sympathetic and compassionate and humble and, and uh, sacrificially loving. That's the kind of community that draws people to Jesus. That's the kind of community God wants us to be here at SMAC. Brothers and sisters, I thank God for giving us each other. Because I can actually see these traits right here among us. And I tell you, it is fantastic. It's a breath of fresh air. But we must never take it for granted. And we must never be satisfied with where we're at. Because we're not there yet. We must keep on working hard to foster that kind of godly community that Peter's describing. Where each one of us makes it our goal to relate to each other in the way that Peter tells us to. Together to center out, center on Jesus and, and live out his truth in our relationships. Or we will descend into the petty politicking and self-serving, self-interested, self-motivated maneuvering that characterizes far too many churches. Where they lose their focus on Christ and his gospel. Being a 
Christ-like community. That is the end. That's the goal to which we are called. Because that's a tangible picture of our final inheritance. That blessing of being God's people and God's place under God's blessing and rule together forever where sin is no more. That blessing of participating in that ultimate perfected community of love, that, that new heaven and new earth. So Peter says in verse 9, To this you were called, that you may inherit a blessing. For, verse 10, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That final quote is from Psalm 34 which we read earlier. A psalm about how God saved David, a godly man from evil men. And it points to how God saved Jesus from death at the hands of evil men by raising him to life. And it reminds us that if we profess to follow Christ, if we really are his people, if we really are heading for that inheritance that he's won for us by his resurrection, then we must follow his example. Like Jesus, we are to keep our tongues from evil, pursue peace, and do good. We are to live in an exemplary way in society, in the workplace, in the home, and in the church. And if we do that, not only will we will be following in the footsteps of our Lord, but we'll be living such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you that um, your word is sufficient to teach us all that we need, not only for salvation, uh, but for living a godly life. And thank you that you've taught us about how to live in society, and how to live in families, how to live in, in church. Our Father, we pray that you'll mold us and make us by your Spirit to be the kind of people that you want us to be. And we pray that uh, our lives uh, would so show your glory uh, and so reflect your goodness and so follow uh, the example of our Lord Jesus uh, that people around us would see our good deeds and glorify you on the day you visit us. So we commit ourselves to you and we ask that you will mold us and change us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.